Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman today along with, hey, cool return. We've got Batya Ungar Sargon. I'm sure I butchered it, Batya. I got that part right. Batya, welcome back to the debate, by the way. Thank you so much, Andrew. It is so great to be here with you and with our two guests who you're about to introduce. Absolutely. We've got Rakeem Brooks. He is the president of Alliance for Justice and Brian Reisinger, who is an award-winning writer from rural America. Rakeem, Brian, welcome to the debate. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. So I was uh, for our first question, I was doing a little research the other day because if, you know, the three top Democrats in the House step away and if the next three step into leadership in January, the average age of House leadership will drop by 30 years. (laughs) It's kind of an amazing development. And along with that, we kind of have these polls that indicate a majority of Americans kind of like the idea of uh, an age limit on Congress. President Biden just turned 80. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Of course, Donald Trump is well past 70. About a third of the Senate and a sixth of the House is over 70. Uh, Two members of the Supreme Court, which has gotten younger recently because of retirements. So first question out the gate, uh, Rakeem, for you, what do you think about there being some kind of an age limit for the House, the Senate, the White House, the Supreme Court? Sure. I really love this question. It caused me to think a little bit about what it is we want from our representatives at every level of government. So I'm going to start off just by saying, I don't know that we should use legislation for this. Legislation is always a blunt instrument, but the instinct that you were just discussing, Andrew, among the public to focus on the age of our elected representatives, I think is right. I was looking back at Federalist One, Alexander Hamilton. He says, vigor of the government is essential to the security of liberty. What did he mean by vigor? He was 30 at the time. The Constitutional Convention, the average age was 42. Washington was only 55. Franklin was the only one above 80. And the only reason for that was ceremonial because he is basically the father of the country. There was not a single delegate in their 70s at our most important moment in our history. So are we due to get younger? I think so, absolutely. But it should be something that the people implement. Normally, when we're talking about age limits, it's because we have concerns about diminished capacity, that vigor piece. Uh, but I think that that can be judged on a case by case basis. If you look like look at Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, they seem to be running circles around some of their younger colleagues. I would have trusted John Paul Stevens to write an opinion until his dying day. And so uh, I'm all right, of course, as I think we all are with really sophisticated, excellent jurists, politicians, et cetera, who have experience and bring that to bear. But on the whole, we have got to bring the age of government down to see the vigor that we want. You know, Brian, uh, as Rakeem points out, probably it's very hard to get a constitutional amendment, uh, perhaps impossible. But the base question is maybe should we be looking at this as a society? I mean, is it fair to say something like I like you, but, you know, 72, mm, I don't like that so much. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's an absolutely fair question to ask. And I think it's a legitimate thing for the voters to consider. You know, I'll say we we have the ultimate age limit, which is an election. It's kind of like the term limit debate. We have an election. There's a lot of things that a, a engaged electorate can help solve. And I think that age is a perfectly legitimate thing for people to be considering. And I do think it's a case by case thing. I'll give you an example here in Wisconsin. Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner, one of the longest serving members of the House ever, sharp as attack, by the way, never gave in to the Washington mindset. Anybody who talks to him right or left knows that he doesn't sound like a guy who spent too much time in Washington. He sounds like a guy who's done a lot of town halls in his district. So it really makes a difference when you have a representative like that. I think that for President Biden, you know, age is an obvious conversation. Um, House leadership, there's an obvious conversation there. And Republicans have their share of that too. And both parties need to be ready to face scrutiny and every individual candidate needs to be able to face scrutiny on a wide range of criteria and whether or not you're up for the job is about as baseline of a criteria as you get. And I think it's fair for voters to be you know, tough on that. It doesn't mean we can't have a respectful debate. Could I have all right. One? All right. All right. All right. There, there's way too much agreement going on here. I know, I know you're really uncomfortable. All right. Here's a, here's, a, here's a counter argument that I want you all to consider. You know, the problem is not the age. The problem is the policies, right? Like the problem is not a physical attribute it's what they're doing once they're in there and you know i I, what do you make of this argument i mean i look at i look at president biden you know you hear people saying all the time he's diminished in some capacity there's clearly deterioration due to age i think that's 100 true i mean i think you can see he's not the man he was verbally in terms of his acuity even two years ago to say nothing of the man that he was 10 years ago 20 years ago however I cannot point to a single policy that he has implemented 
that I don't think AOC would have done if she was president, right? I, I can't point to a single thing he has done that I can say this is outside the realm of possibility for a younger Democrat or a more progressive Democrat. I mean, he seems to me to be um, reigning like, um, you know, a much younger version of who the Democratic Party happens to be appealing to. Now, I have my own quibbles with that, you know, from a class point of view, who it seems like they're they're catering to. But what would you say to that? I mean, what policy could you point to that you could say this is the result of deterioration or of his age, as opposed to this is just where the Democratic Party is at right now? Let's start with you, Rakim. Sure. So I think that's basically right, that on the questions of policy, the president has a large infrastructure, a policymaking infrastructure around him and the decision making ability to do it. I mean, in that sense, he's almost like a judge. He just kind of sits there. People bring things to him. He uses a brain. He decides whether or not it's good or bad. And we haven't seen much in the way of diminished capacity in, in those terms. However, to the point that I thought Brian was making about um, uh, I forgot which congressman you mentioned, but who was going around into town halls, right? The question with the president that I think most concerns progressives, Democrats, people who are interested in his reelection is that he won't have the vigor necessary to do it on the campaign trail. He went through a COVID campaign the last time and he did so phenomenally well. He could pull the kind of Trump-esque model of sort of having large standing, um, standing room only kind of receptions uh, in which he's doing big crowds. But in a country as closely divided as ours, it's going to take a lot of retail politics in order to secure those small wins in those very few states that are going to be necessary to win the Electoral College. And so there's concern about that. Obviously, after the midterms, he stood up there and said, watch me do it. And I think we can, we're going to bear witness to it probably in a few years. And I actually have confidence in his ability to figure out how to navigate that. But that's where the question is coming from. I don't think it's about policy. It's about the other rigors associated with being um, the president of the United States and a politician more generally. So, Brian, I want you to respond to that, but I want to also give you a chance to, you know, there's another, you know, big time politician on the table who's getting on in years, you know, and who's Governor DeSantis is not that old. OK, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Brian, do you think Trump is too old to be running again? Um, go ahead and respond to anything Rakeem said you want to respond to. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take the Trump part of that and then I'll move on to some of the other stuff. I think that both parties have real questions of generational leadership in front of them. And I think it's a really hard discussion. And I think part of the reason that you're seeing DeSantis and others, and it's not the only reason, but part of the reason you're seeing DeSantis and others is because there are some voters who are hungering for, you know, maybe some of what they had from the last Republican administration, but wanting to move on to other policies, other visions, other approaches to governing. Um, and maybe they see some of that in younger leaders. So I, I think that that's a real question that Trump will face, not for the same reasons and to the, necessarily to the same degree that Biden will. It's just different, each individual, as Rakeem said. But I think it's a, I think it's a serious question for, for President Trump and for Republicans, for sure. Um, on the issue of policies and, and whether or not Biden's age or other things that he's doing have you know, take us in a direction that, you know, some people might feel is out of touch. I think there's kind of two lenses. One is the age part. And the other part is just disagreement on policy. So I'll, I'll, I'll put on my rural conservative hat here and say that there's a couple of different things. I mean, one is the, the inability to get ahead of, or to try to do a better job of minimizing the impact of inflation, the cost of groceries, the cost of a tank of gas. And that's not an age thing necessarily, because mm -hmm. people of all ages deal with that, but young families, it's a really big deal trying to figure out how you're going to make the weekly budget work. And it can be something that people who are removed from that for one reason or another may not grasp as quickly. And I don't think age is the only dynamic there, but I think that it's it's in the mix. Um, the other thing that I would say, and this is something that you'll hear Republicans say a lot, and so we can we can really get into some, some tussles around this if we want to, but you'll hear Republicans talking about whether or not world leaders um, think there are lines they can't cross with Joe Biden. You know, did Vladimir Putin or others, you know, deal with him and say, you know, maybe I can push this envelope a little bit because, you know, he's not, to your point, the man that he was two, 10, 20 years ago. Um, I think that is hard to know without getting inside the heads of those foreign leaders. But it is a criticism that's leveled that I think is is worthy of discussion. All right. So, so let me ask one I, more follow up. And then, Andrew, I'll let you jump back in here. Brian, I, I think you're so right about this question of older people, of, of, of not understanding the challenges of the average American. But my follow up question to that would be, um, that is a question of income. That is not a question of age, right? That's not a question of like, an, you know, um, where it, 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 it by that logic, 
maybe we should be introducing income caps on people who can run for office because no billionaires people, for president. Exactly. They're so <laughs> rich. They I totally agree with you. They don't understand what Nancy Pelosi, the idea that she understands what a young family is going through is, you know, it's it, it you know, the problem with her is not that she's in her 80s. She's still sharper than I am, right? She's still obviously totally with it. It's that she is so disconnected from what the average American is facing. So isn't this really a question about how rich Rich politicians are not how old they are. Let's do Brian, then Rakim. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair point. And I think it's something that the Republican Party for a long time didn't do a good job of reckoning with, right? And they were sort of the party of the rich without really realizing and understanding that. And um, that's changed over the years. And, and both sides kind of, I think there's been an awakening to class um, among both parties that's important. Um, so I think money and class is absolutely part of it. I think age is part of it. I think where you're from in the country is part of it. This is my flyover country bias. Um, and obviously we've got geographic distribution by virtue of just the way that our system is set up. But um, to some degree, having you know a time period where you can have people from uh, a certain income level, a certain age, a certain part of the country controlling things, it's good for that to be a constantly changing kaleidoscope, right? With an electorate that frankly is kicking the bums out, so to speak. And we've, for all the talk of all the change elections that we've had the last several cycles of which there have for sure been change elections. There's two things that have limited there being a positive impact around that. The first thing is it's kind of been a, a rapid fire ping pong change election where it's sort of from one extreme to the next. And not, I don't know that either party has really come out with a new governing approach out of those change elections. And then this most recent election really kind of wasn't a change election, right? Mm -hmm. It was kind of a mess. And Republicans were, um, you know, got the House, but it was a little underwhelming. Um, and there was sort of just this strange strength of incumbency. So I think that the answer to this still is the engaged electorate um, really holding individual politicians to the fire, whatever the reason might be that they're out of touch. I find myself very conflicted on the subject because part of me thinks this is a perfectly legitimate thing to ask. I, I mean, I, my grandmother, who was bright and lively and alert and a leader until she wasn't. And it was a very quick transition, something that typically doesn't happen to people in their 50s, but does happen to people when they're you know 80 or in that vicinity. And I wonder how much of this is ageism. I wonder how much of this is no fair concern. I wonder how much of this is like Batya says, look, the policies and the deliberation is is substantially the same but man the verbal gaffes and the you know having to use cue cards and asking if a dead congresswoman is in attendance at an event that was kind of related there i mean those kinds of things make me wonder about somebody's ability to make the decisions in the situation room to get the respect they need out of their subordinates to make policy work at the you know higher levels Th those are the kinds of things that i'm thinking about and what I wonder is, is it really just, well, I'm a conservative and I look at Joe Biden, you know, so I kind of have my critiques or is it a fair thing if I saw those those same issues in somebody that, you know, is more on my side of the aisle? It, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm very persuaded by what you said, Rakeem, that the vigor, you know, like the renewal, there's something about term limits that appeals because we get new ideas in and they're clogging up the process by holding their positions for too long. And we need to get younger people in if for no other reason that they understand, like Batya says, so. I don't know. I know that's a big jumble of thoughts, but that's kind of where I'm at on the subject. Uh, Rakeem? I'm kind of with, with you, Andrew. Let me add two things that maybe um, that we've been talking around. But one is maybe something that militates in favor of an age um, limit is that we all kind of grow to love our politician, whoever they are, right? No matter how old they get, no matter how diminished the capacity, you don't want to see them go out on a weak note. You don't want to push them out because, in fact, they've lost a step. And so we as You're a people, talking to a Cardinals fan, I understand <laughs> the phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. Right. So so we as a people may just need to sort of put, um, uh, I don't know, some guardrails around ourselves, recognizing like we become a little too sentimental about the elderly and what they've contributed to the country. And that makes it harder to tell them to go when the time has come. So let's just set an age limit like law firms are now at 65. The person is 65 at almost every law firm I've worked at or been associated with has often been like at the height of their powers. You actually didn't want them to go away, but the law firm needed renewal and so forth. But Batia, one thing you, you've been raising that I think we haven't talked about that actually, again, militates in favor of having a lower age 
on average, is um, the question not just of the disconnect because of finances, but technological innovation in the society. We all know most of these centers have no idea what social media really does, right? Now that we have crypto, they have no idea what is going on in the crypto markets and we're asking them to regulate them. That's not to a person. There are some who are very sophisticated, but overall, these are not devices and things that they deal with regularly. If I suddenly said my partner and I, we forgot to book a car going to Georgia, right? And so we went on Turo. How much, how do you, much do you want to bet if we polled the members of Congress and said, do you know what Turo is? They would say no. And then if they, you told them what it was, which is, oh, it's like Airbnb for cars. They'd be like, that's outrageous. <laughs> you say like, but I've got to get to where I need to get. Right. So I think that we need that diversity. We need that turnover. We need to lower the average age. It's not to say to exclude um, people who are octogenarians or septuagenarians from our politics. In fact, I think that they should keep sort of senior status roles within our politics, within the parties and serve as advisors to younger politicians. But everyone always wants in on the action. So no one wants to retire. And we end up totally creeping up in the average age of our elected. If you don't know what Venmo is. You can be emeritus. Brian, <laughs> uh, <laughs> final right. thoughts before we move on. Yeah, I'm going to throw one wrench into this at the last minute, which is I think that another thing that we're talking around is campaign finance reform in a way, because I think, you know, one one part of what Rakeem said that I'll take a slightly different take on is if we're going to have age limits, I think that one of the issues is just the barriers to entry of running. And one of them is being able to raise money. And, you know, there's all kinds of them, but just to take the raising the money thing. Now, the right and the left are going to have different answers about what to do about that. Some on the right might say transparency, some on the left might say government funding, whatever it is, making it so that, you know, some of these incumbents are beloved. And it's true that people love their congressmen, but hate Congress. That's a truth. Um, some people also don't really like their congressmen all that much, but it's pretty damn expensive to get them out of office and to get, you know, a young person with fresh thinking in there. And so I think that's probably a debate for another day, but figuring out a way to deal with the barriers to entry for people to run so that more of these guys get some stiff challenges wouldn't be a bad thing. I love this. $100,000 for every year you're younger than your opponent. <laughs> oh, yeah. The age and wisdom compensation factor, a, 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 a redistribution of campaign finance reform. I like it. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about the respect for marriage law. I'm Andrew Tallman here with Batya Ungar Sargon. We'll be back on the debate. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. This is The Debate from Newsweek. We are joined today by Rakeem Brooks and Brian Reisinger, and we are on to our next topic, which is the Respect for Marriage Act, a new bipartisan bill that's going to repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, um, which requires states to recognize all legal marriages, whether they're between two men, two women, and it also protects interracial marriages by requiring states to recognize legal marriages regardless of sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin. So a couple of weeks ago, the Senate voted to proceed to a vote by a wide bipartisan margin on this. So 12 Republican senators joined all 50 Democratic senators to move the bill forward. Now, what I find, um, what I loved about this story was it uh, confirmed one of my biases, <laughs> which is that we are just not as divided as our national news media wants us to believe and as our politicians want us to believe that when it comes to the most important issues 
that this great nation was founded on things like equality and dignity for all, interracial marriage, respect for gay people. Like we're just not that divide anymore. We know that 55% of Republicans support gay marriage. And then you had these 12 um, Republican senators joining Democrats on this bill. So Rakim, my question to you would be, um, you know, if, 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 if we're not really that divided on these important issues, why do we think we are? Oh, well, why do this is a hard question, but I'm going to push back and say we are more divided than you think we are. So those mm-hmm. were national polls, obviously, and not state by state. And so the reason that the Congress has to act at all in this context is because they are concerned that there will be states that will not honor the full faith and credit clause, essentially that they will opt out of the Constitution and not recognize marriages um, that were completed in other states. And so um yeah, maybe I start there, that the division is much deeper than you think. We actually are talking about a constitutional fracture where there are people who are threatening <laughs> not to abide the rule of law. And so the Congress is using its power to prescribe the manner in which um, that full faith and credit will be recognized and the effects of it, as the cla- as the clause says. Um, what I'm most concerned about, though, is that the Supreme Court seems to have pushed us in this direction. We now have a court that has three Trump appointees and Justice Thomas, who has signaled to them that he is ready to reconsider recent precedent um, on the grounds that he doesn't believe in substantive due process. And so there are massive divisions in our society. Uh, They may not appear as naturally in the polling, but I actually think they exist both in terms of the divisions between the different branches of government and between the states. So, Brian, I want you to respond to that, but I also want you to respond to um, something else, which is there has been a big shift on the right in terms of gay marriage, right? Over the last 15 years, you know, we started at 16% support and now it's up to 55%. Um, where do you think that shift came from? Is is that a success that conservatives have to attribute to the left and essentially thank them for? So. You're, the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dangerous way to pose that. Um, I There absolutely has been a shift. I'll just say I'm personally supportive of same-sex marriage, and I think that policies that can help make this be settled law, as well as related legal questions be settled law, are a good thing. Um, the issue of how the shift occurred, I think it's a couplefold. Um, I think that there's a, there's a variety of um, suburban voters who were maybe more traditional at one time, who maybe now care more a little bit about economic issues and things like that, and, and just don't care as much about faith-driven issues. The other thing that I'll say, though, and this is true of places like where I'm from in rural Wisconsin, there's a lot of people who are either conservative or um, live in rural communities um, or are you know of a particular faith that might have traditionally been associated with being you know against this kind of thing that have really shifted. And it's really kind of a live and let live thing. I mean, you talk to a lot of people and they just say, you know, I'm supportive of that. Or they're just like, you know, I'm not real worried about it. You know, I think people should love who they want to love that kind of thing. So there's a live and let live attitude. And, and I think it it is something that is an important thing to remember with what Rakeem said, where some states there are going to be, you know, policy debates that could be of concern to the left. It's also true that there's a lot of people who are um, either supportive of same-sex marriage or indifferent to it, which there there's a way to persuade those people as long as they don't feel that their religious liberties or other things are under threat. Mm-hmm. And if we can have a conversation that can bring that temperature down, we can continue to see the shift that we've seen. If we have a conversation that does not bring that temperature down, you're going to have a lot of people who might be okay with same-sex marriage, but are going to say, hey, but wait a minute, what does that mean for what my church does or does not have to do? And that's an important discussion to be able to have as we try to balance those rights. And I certainly you saw that in the conversation about this bill, right, where it definitely tries to trade off. Hey, give us a little, you know, national recognition for what the Supreme Court has said. Uh, Oh, let's also add in, you know, interracial marriage is perfectly fine. And in trade for that, we're going to protect nonprofits from being able to be coerced into doing something that they don't want to do. You still have, you know, a fairly sizable, maybe three quarters of the Senate, right? 38 senators who voted no. Um, and, you know, many of your more conservative senators vote no because a lot of the country is not ready for that. Or also, I, my own personal problem with this bill is I, I, you know, I, I'm actually not, you know, I'm more with Mike Pence. Okay. Um, but I would be willing to trade. If you're going to say, okay, we're going to have this institution accept this definition of marriage, but I would like to have more robust protections, even for individuals, not just nonprofits. You know, we think of like the cake bake shop and things like that. But just like you said, Brian, for people to feel comfortable that 
hey, I can disagree. I know what the law is. I can disagree. And I'm not going to be coerced into changing my mind because of that. I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about. And if there was more protection in that direction, they'd probably be more on board with a law like this. Um, uh, Rakeem, do you think that's a little bit more comprehensive of a way forward to bring in dissenters? I think it's a more comprehensive way to bring in dissenters, perhaps. But the question is, at what cost? Uh, As we all know on this call, one of the primary ways in which the South attempted to resist desegregation orders was on the basis of religion. I happen to be black and I happen to be gay. And so just as I was not inclined to see the South resist desegregation orders on the basis of religion, I'm not inclined to see a person and or a partnership walk into a courthouse um, and be told that the person who has served everyone else will not serve them on the basis of their sexual orientation, that it's someone else has to do it. And so I think it's a bridge too far. And we as a country have really got to ask ourselves, when a person is acting in a ministerial role as a government official, regardless of their religious beliefs, what is incumbent upon them, regardless of their personal beliefs? Not everything need ground be grounded in religion. You can have freedom of conscience, as I think we have enshrined in the First Amendment. But what are you required to do by virtue of that job? And should you lose your job if, in fact, you're not willing to perform those services? And my answer is yes. You're, of course, welcome to hold that belief in the private quarters of your home. But no, you're not allowed to refuse me at a courthouse, nor are you allowed to refuse me at a Woolworths counter. And I think that's the that's the concern that people who still hold to the traditional marriage concept are worried about is that they are going to be coerced in public in whatever role they're in to accepting a viewpoint that their religion just very clearly tells them they can't hold. Uh, Brian, is there a compromise here to be had? You know, I, I get where Rakeem is coming from, but is there a way to bring in the people who, even though they might not say it very loudly, They feel like they maybe have to hide that right now that they disagree with uh, gay marriage. Is there a way to bring them in and validate that while also telling people like Rakeem, you know, hey, you're a full member of society and this is fine. Yeah. You know, I think that this bill took a step in that direction. Um, I know that senators on both sides of the aisle work very hard to try to have religious protections in that could still be something that could be passed. And so I think that this is the beginning of some of that balance. Um, I think something that will really help is if everyday people um, and also people who control the levers of government try to approach this conversation in a way that allows for people to have their viewpoints, but to have a common space that is, you know, allows for equality and safety for everybody. And um, I'll give you an example. Um, Senator Mike Lee had an amendment that probably went further than some people on the left would want to go. I know that, of course. Um, that was attempting to make sure that there wouldn't be IRS targeting religious institutions. I'm not going to get into the specific legality of that. That's an example of if folks who are okay with same-sex marriage, but have religious concerns, feel like there isn't a protection for the religious institution, um, I think you're going to see the right um, continue to come back on this debate. And I think we're not going to be moving in a direction where it becomes more settled. And I do think there's a difference between a, a courthouse to Rakim's point and a Catholic church, for instance. You know, um, I think there are differences in terms of the kind of space that we're talking about there and, and what people um, expect from those spaces. I would agree agree with that. I, I do think of the Catholic Church as being a private institution, even though it has a tax exemption under the tax code. I think what I'm really referring to are kind of semi-public institutions, the kinds that were meant to be protected <clears throat> by the Civil Rights Act. So what do we do? Um, I don't really know how this would be set up, but I'm just imagining that there wants to, there's a gay adoption, for instance, and uh, they want to have their children's party at a Chick-fil-A. We're going to court about that, right? Chick-fil-A is not going to allow them to have that reception, and they should. And the question is, what do we do about that? It's a private institution in that it's a private act of law, but it's created for the public, right? It's considered for public consumption. And we could have arguments about that on both sides, but I'm sort of laying out where I stand on it because I think this is one of those insidious ways in which people do not become recognized as full citizens. When we sort of say that various, when we think about religious institutions, we're almost treating them as individual cells throughout the society, as opposed to a broad swath of society in many places and states where in fact not to be part of that religion, not to hold that particular set of religious views renders you not just a political minority, but a social minority of kind of certain kinds. And so how is it that you become a full citizen absent um, the need for full recognition of the ways in which you've chosen to live your life so long again as those things are um, public artifacts like marriage. And that's exactly the place where, you know, you and I are going to find ourselves at friction and where I think this bill probably couldn't have gotten passed if they'd gone more in the direction that I was talking about, because there's an awful lot of people that might be fine 
with gay marriage, but they don't want Chick-fil-A to have to host <laughs> the party. And that's that's where we're going to differ, at least for now. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a big advertised change at Twitter. Will he, won't he return to the platform? And then, oh, he's back, but he's not back. And what did change? We'll talk about it when we come back on the debate. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. I'm Batia Angersarga, and I'm here with Andrew Tallman. And our guests today are Rakeem Brooks and Brian Reisinger. Um, our next topic is a little bit of a change of pace, uh, a little bit more fun. Um, so so it's, 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 it's happening. Elon Musk reinstated Donald Trump's Twitter account. So, of course, Donald Trump was famously banned from Twitter after January 6th for the role that it was perceived that he had in inciting that mob. Um, and Elon Musk let him back on. So the debate is now roiling as to whether he should have been let on. Is this going to lead to another January 6th disaster? Is this a question of free speech, a question of, you know, political rights, a question of First Amendment rights? Um, and is Donald Trump going to come back at all? I have already lost a steak dinner that I owe my friend because I bet him <laughs> that Donald Trump would not be able to go 24 hours without tweeting. So I'm salty about that. But let's start with you, Rakim. Um, How did you react to the news? that Trump was back? And uh, where do you think we go from here? Well, like everybody, I just sort of knew that you couldn't trust Elon Musk with, you know, your valuables. He's He's totally... Or bought you a steak dinner. Right, exactly, right? So um, we've seen a massive exodus from Twitter based on his overall policies. I get that he's trying to make the place profitable and he has a set of objectives. And frankly, he's been more successful than I've ever been in business. So I probably should trust him to do those things. (laughs) That said... Uh, inviting Donald Trump back absent the content moderation that he said would happen, I think is a fair, is probably a bridge too far and too quickly. Um, President Trump really is a kind of existential threat to the society, right? He is the thing that the founders warned us about. He is the thing that if you go back and you read your old ancient Greek philosophy textbooks and they're like, a demagogue will arise who has control and access to the population. That's Donald Trump, right? Like here we are in this particular moment. And the question is, how would you shut that down in such a society? Because we are ultimately a popular democracy where even with all of our representative checks, we can see that the founders didn't anticipate parties and he has control over the Republican Party to some extent. And so Elon Musk seems to have thrown that out entirely by saying there are First Amendment concerns that I want to raise. But I always try to remind people the government is meant, excuse me, the amendments and the Constitution as a whole are meant to protect the government, to stand it up. As Abraham Lincoln used to say, the Constitution frames the apple, which is the Declaration of Independence that assures all of our equality and our liberties. And so I think letting Trump back into this platform is a massive mistake. We had just begun to reach the point where he was uh, sort of being diminished by political factors, by the inability to reach a large population, all the little various sort of social media enterprises he tried had failed. And now we've got to confront him head on. That said, there is some value in having to confront him head on. As I've told friends before, I think that putting Donald Trump in a cell somewhere for things that we believe that he's done is really the wrong approach. Ultimately, he has to be defeated at the ballot box. This just will make it more difficult to do that. And so I'm worried. Brian. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, first of all, January 6th was an appalling and sad day in our country's history. There's no way around that. And there's no way around the fact that there's a large amount of conversation on Twitter um, that has been toxic for our country and, and other platforms too. And, and President Trump, I think, has been a a feature of that, a part of that, a symptom of that. 
a fueler of that, um, but so many others have as well. I think that there's one thing that's important to note, which is that there's sort of a principle. And I remember this going back to journalism school. I was always taught that, you know, the answer to problematic speech is more speech, vigorous debate, you know, to take the name of this podcast, pun intended, I suppose. The, the value of being able to have the conversation and confront is just central to our country's values. It's central to our system. Rakeem acknowledged that in his answer as well. I think that the question is, is Elon Musk, the innovator, the problem solver, the guy who's been able to figure out a lot of things that nobody's been able to figure out, is he going to be able to slay the dragon that big tech is still living under the flames of, which is the issue of how do you actually have an open platform that allows for free speech, but also deals with things like speech that puts people in danger, different things that cross legal barriers that we as a society have agreed we want to be careful of. I would love to see Elon Musk have a freewheeling platform that allows for the kind of vigorous debate that we're all envisioning sort of in the abstract here, but that has something that's fast and targeted. Um, I don't know whether it's a moderation council or any piece of the different approaches that other platforms have had, but this is a this is one man who's highly innovative, who moves much faster than your average corporation. Can he figure out a way? to have wide open, vigorous debate that when a line is crossed, it's very clear. And that line is not one that's so easily disputed by people. One person's censorship being another person's you know, protection of the country. Is there a way to get out of that gray area? And um, you know, so I think that's an ultimate test for a guy like Elon Musk, who wants to take us to Mars and all kinds of different things. It'd be great <laughs> if he could figure this out. So Rakim, I want to ask you quickly, um, is there anything that was happening on Twitter under the old regime that bothered you? Do you accept any of the claims that um, conservatives were shadow banned, were censored, were kicked off more regularly? Or do you think that most of that was just, you know, hysteria and that, you, you know, you think the content moderation was actually great under the old Twitter regime and it's been totally broken now? Do you think it left any room for improvement? I'm sure there was room for improvement. Um, my basic belief is we probably do over censor people. I just think that January 6th was a bridge too far and a permanent mm -hmm. ban was perfectly acceptable. So mm -hmm. that's really where I'm drawing the line to Brian's question about what's what's a bright line. If you incite an insurrection against the government <laughs> and you use the platform to do so, well, maybe you never get to come back ever, ever, ever. So isn't, isn't I that kind of a weird I mean, I, I'm with you in sentiment. OK, I understand the concerns about January 6th, but. Part of me also says, OK, so you're going to let a guy be eligible for president, but not eligible for Twitter. You know, that's <laughs> kind of weird to me that you'd be it'd be harder to earn Twitter's uh, recognition than something else. I, I'm actually wondering about a different slice of this problem, which is I'm not a heavy Twitter user. I, I go there basically to get some news, but I don't post. I don't comment. I don't. I'm very light. OK, Facebook is my medium. So I'm wondering, as I know, all three of you are much more active on Twitter. Has anything changed? Since Trump was gone, did it make a big difference that he's not there and that he's still not really back? So, yet? Did... Andrew, they're, they're going to have different answers to that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, and I'm curious because my and, and I know platform, under the promise yeah. of what's coming with Elon Musk and the possibility of more uh, open, equal playing field for conservatives and all of that. But, uh, Brian, you know, Trump got banned. And what changed, if anything, to your mind? Yeah. Well, one thing that changed is the number of Republican campaigns that run for cover um, with whatever news cycle he's he's, <laughs> you know, making. And that can be right, wrong or indifferent, whatever the news is, whether you liked it. I mean, it was an earth shattering thing at times for um, campaigns and, and public officials to be dealing with. And that's not to say that they need sympathy over that or or whatever. It's just to say it was a reality. I think the temperature came down some. Um because, you know, President Trump does have such passionate support and such passionate criticism of him that it did bring the temperature down some. However, I still think that Twitter is not, you know, the place that exemplifies the kind of discussion debate we want to have. There are people on the right and the left who are constestly using it to trigger one another, to troll one another in a way that isn't that's really frankly, That's debate, why I don't right? use it. I, I, I find yeah. it a toxic environment, not the kind of discussion I want to have with people. That, that's exactly why I don't use it personally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a feature of it that um, it'd be great if we could move past. Um, but I don't know that we will. So I, I, I think that the temperature came down some, but I think that Twitter is still a pretty rough and sometimes ugly place. It's a little bit of a wasteland. Um, use whatever metaphor you want. <laughs> and um, I think that some of that is endemic to the to to the platform, given its history. I don't know how we change that.
So, Rakim, I'm kind of curious your take here also is, um, you know, removing President Trump. I get your arguments about, you know, why for January 6th demagoguery and Plato. I love the reference to the old philosophers. That's great. Um, But did it fundamentally change Twitter? You know, did it make Twitter a safer place to not have him around? Not not in terms of the country, but in terms of Twitter. Yeah, I'm not trying to evade the question, but I just don't know if that's the right question. So one thing we really haven't talked about is what is Twitter and is it the public space or not the public space? And there's a big case coming up before the Supreme Court, um, Google v. Gonzalez or something like that, which is about Section 230, the Communications Decency Act. The basic idea is Twitter is not held responsible for anything that happens on the platform so long as it's not engaged in content moderation of one kind or of editorial content moderation. Um, and so Twitter and all the all the uh, social media um, platforms have basically been walking this tightrope of essentially trying to regulate content without really editorializing in the content. And I guess my view is, and has been, and why I'm interested in how this case comes out, is that Twitter is not a public forum. Twitter is owned by a private company. It is true that we use it as the public square, but just like I can send something to the New York Times or to the Washington Post and they don't have to publish it, and they can ban me for all sorts of reasons, including that they dislike ideas that I express or uh, in particular that I've done something publicly that they think should no longer be lifted up. I think Twitter can do the same thing. Facebook could do the same thing. And um, so could any of the other platforms, TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. The problem that they face is that they think so too, but they don't want to be held liable for it. That's what we're that's what we're into right now. And I think no, you should be held liable for it, right? If you're going to regulate content, if you're going to editorialize, there are all sorts of well-established protections in our law for editorial service. Those should all apply to our social media platforms, but they really want to eat their cake and have it too. And that's why this disagreement comes up. Because if they are, which you both, I think, sort of uh, take as a background, a public forum entirely, right? Then no, they can't ban Donald Trump. And the point that you make is entirely right. He shouldn't be able to be president on one hand, but not speak on Twitter. That's just the nature of being a citizen. But I also take you both to be saying, and I agree, that Twitter is not the public forum. In fact, if it is, we have gone to hell and we didn't realize it. Well, I guess my question would be like, yes, it's a private company, but does something become important enough that it effectively becomes the place where the First Amendment does become, if not like you know, de jure an issue, but de facto an issue, right? Where a platform is so important that barring someone from it does become a free speech issue because no one can compete with that platform. Like, does that, is that, does it ever rise to that? And can you, can we, maybe Twitter hasn't risen to that yet, but is it possible to imagine that that would happen? Because I think that that conflict between it being a private company, but also a very important one to where journalists and politicians hang out and influence each other, and make news. I mean, that's that's real. What do you think, Rakim? And then we'll get Brian. I guess I always, this is the lawyer in me. I try to think by virtue of analogy, we do have people who are rich enough to buy out every stadium in the country and mm-hmm. host events there simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Like you could do it, right? Are we suddenly saying that they would have to admit everyone because they had done that because they had essentially seized this large mm-hmm. public space to have conversations in spaces that were previously private and had to be owned through various sort of financial architectures? I think the answer in our law would be no, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, now, Query if it should be. I'm sort of with you, right? Like there's a question there about should anybody have that much power that they could actually summon us all at one particular moment to all the stadiums around the country? But our law is pretty clear that that does not then invite someone that you don't want to be invited. And it's not then a public space. So that's kind of where I end up with Twitter. I recognize the conundrum that we face, that it is this large open forum. It's created, you know, new millionaires and new personalities and so forth. But Um, At least right now, my line is they're not a public forum, but they have all the liability and they're trying to, you know, as I said, have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, absolutely. Brian? Yeah, you know, I think that there's a reason that people on the right and the left are both so pissed off at these big (laughs) platforms, right? And why we all kind of root for the return of the ghost of Teddy Roosevelt to come in and just crack some heads. (laughs) Uh, and that is the having cake and eat it too. And I, and I think that the challenge that we've ran into as these platforms have been doing the content moderation and trying to walk that line Rakim is talking about is how arbitrary some of it becomes. And I'm sure it's harder than it looks. There's a reason I'm not, you know, trying to do it. Um, it's difficult, but you know, there are people who get banned for mentioning topics that are, you know, deemed problematic and they might not even be making the argument or raising the facts that deem 
content moderation from that platform's criteria. They could be mentioning the topic. They can be making the opposite argument and they'll get banned. There's people who get things pulled down just because it's tangential. It, it's really a, a very blunt instrument. It's very cookie cutter. And so it's it's not effective. When it's not effective and people who aren't making the argument that you know is supposedly problematic, they're making the opposite argument or they're talking about it in a different way. Um, there's all these you know really imprecise outcomes that you have. And so people don't trust that. And I do think that there's a really serious issue here with things getting too big. And Americans are skeptical of that, of large institutions. And so they're not a public space legally, um, but Twitter and Facebook and others, they are in a way, in spirit, they are large institutions of their own making. And they're institutions that people have become you know, concerned about for good reason. You know, I have, uh, I have kids, they're all teenagers, and every single one of them jokes with me when I sometimes will say something, oh, dad, I'm going to get you banned on Twitter. Like they know that they've internalized that. And even if they don't take it seriously, and even if that's not the practice, that's the point of the sort of thought police environment, right? Is that even when you're joking about it, you've internalized the structure that there's somebody they're going to punish you for saying the wrong thing. You know, that that's what I see happening to the free speech issue right now is People feel like not they can't say this because I won't get very many likes and comments, but I can't say this because it's going to get me banned out of what I think Bacha rightly says is the embodiment of the First Amendment social media right now, even if it is Rakeem, a privately you know held group of companies. Uh, Bacha, I know you had one follow up question. I want to go ahead and let, make sure you get that in, though. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. I think that Brian raised a really important issue, and I really just want to hear Rakeem's um, response to it, which is. Um, on on one issue at least, Twitter really created a standard that is very different from where the average American is at. So in the pre- previous uh, uh, segment, you debated we debated a little bit about um, where Americans are at on gay marriage, gay rights. But I think that there is an overwhelming sense that you know what was considered a far left position 15 years ago is now where the me- the median American is at, which is everybody deserves to live in dignity. Um, But when it comes to um, trans issues, it seems to me that Twitter really has abandoned where most Americans are at, which is in this sort of middle zone of every person should be treated with dignity. No one should be discriminated against in housing or at the workplace. But there's a very robust debate happening in America over things like um, puberty blockers, for example, you know, over 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 things that affect children. Um, and Twitter has taken very much a hard left position on that that is not representative at all of where the vast majority of Americans are at. I wonder if you agree with me about this assessment at all. And if so, what you make of it. Yeah. And just to be clear, because I'm not unfamiliar with this, so is Twitter's position that they will allow the advertising and discussion or that to, or are you saying that their hard ban is that if you were to have any discussion about um, that seemed transphobic, you would be blocked? Yeah. So if you say, for example, um, if you mis- misgender somebody, you get you get banned, you get kicked off. Um, they will affix little, um, you know, their sort of censorship to conversations, weighting things very heavily in one direction. And then they will, you know, there's a lot of censorship happening. But in a way that seems to me to be, um, you know, censoring where the vast majority of Americans are at, those same Americans who are now no longer homophobic, who really do believe in dignity, but are not sure about some of the sort of you know, more extreme versions, you know, or, 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 or outposts of this agenda. Got it. Well, it feels a little complicated to me because I'm probably closer to where, where you are, even where Brian was and Andrew, I mean, I think you should allow for discussion and conversation. I recognize the transphobia in it or how people might feel affected by being misgendered. Um, But I think that we get to better places through conversation. And so to outright block people from a forum is probably unproductive. That said, I sort of still stick with my point that if they've decided that this is a pro-trans platform and to engage in the platform, you have to engage a certain way. I think that that's fine. Um, I I want to push back a little bit, Andrew, because there's one thing that always gets to me about these free speech debates. Women, people of color, I mean, a vast, I mean, religious minorities, all of us have been walking around not being able to say things for fear of exclusion for a very long time. Now, I'm not saying what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I'm actually just saying that's kind of a feature of society and life. 
then people, when they don't like what you say, will sometimes try to exclude you on the basis of what you just said. <laughs> and sometimes that's for sometimes that has positive reper repercussions in that you have forced to think about it and you reform your views or you recognize that you need to go and find your tribe and you start to build something out. Sometimes it has entirely negative repercussions, but you end up bottled up and repressed and unable to express and view yourself fully and think through things. Those things exist. But I think that actually we're existing in that liminal space now for majority for some groups of folks who have never actually felt excluded in conversation. It's always bizarre to me. I'm like, I spent my entire life not talking about <laughs> things in crowds and with people because I knew where it would land me. And so having to moderate yourself that's may bad. Just be, like that's, you know, that's, having to moderate yourself may just be thing. a feature of adulthood. Learning how to communicate, learning how to navigate the space and still exist and <laughs> manage to Well here's survive. here's where I think you and I are likely to agree. Everybody can use a little bit of lesson in what it feels like to be repressed so they don't become the repressors. We yeah. can all use a little bit and maybe more more than just a little bit of feeling that so that we take it seriously when people are experiencing that who don't happen to share our viewpoint or our biology or whatever the category is that we're talking about. Wow, what a great conversation. Uh, I, I always feel the need to have a fun one at the end. So I'm going to I'm going to give you guys a fun one at the end where never know whether there's going to be a fight or not. But it's always the way I like to end the show. So my quick one, since we got Thanksgiving, is actually tomorrow. Question for the question for the group. Let's start with you, Brian. Thanksgiving. I don't want to fight about the turkey. It's turkey, not ham. I don't want to fight about green bean casserole and sweet potatoes. Those are all obligatory. All of that stuff. It's It's stuffing. It's dressing. I don't really care. What I do want to know is what's your bread? What's your bread for Thanksgiving, Brian? Oh, you Answer know, carefully. I've yeah. Well, double careful for me because my wife is the one who bakes the bread and brings it. And that's our, <laughs> nice. that's our household's contribution when we go out to the farm for the bigger family Thanksgiving. So um, I've got a very specific answer and I'll be uh, really biased about it. It's whatever latest recipe my wife is working on. Oh, <laughs> uh, you married an and, experimenter. My heart goes out to you. God bless her. Did you, notice, your bread? did you notice how he had to navigate something that was yeah, a little yeah, bit of repression? He, he hasn't had been to... anywhere close to that careful the whole debate, right? <laughs> yeah. Until this yeah. one moment. And that's wisdom, obviously, of a good husband. <laughs> Uh, mine is cornbread always. Uh, I'm right. sure that's the type of bread you were leaning towards, but that's what I'm always looking forward to for Thanksgiving. Just some real. I like the unexpected cornbread. answer, the atypical. Batya? Challah all the way. It's always challah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I myself am a Pillsbury Crescent Rolls. That is the one <laughs> way to go. Please don't make me eat your dried, weird, no flavor, no texture, white toasted bread it just it's it's a filler in my stomach that just prevents me from eating more stuffing or sweet potatoes <laughs> well rakeem brooks uh brian reisinger uh, great to have Batya back with us for the day anyway uh thank you so much for the conversation it was excellent today i'm andrew tallman thanks for listening to the debate from newsweek Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.